And it doesn't always work that way. Leaven does not by any means always represent sin. It only represents sin for seven days out of the year. The rest of the time it's spoken of as a good thing. Uh, do you think that the kingdom of God spreading all over the earth is a bad thing, as he said there about Matthew 13? I don't think so. And also that one on Pentecost, just to emphasize a little bit, it says that these represent the first fruits. So leavened bread represents the first fruits. I want to be a first fruit. I guess I want to be leavened. There's one more that uh, caught my eye in Amos 4, verse 5. It said, and offer, of course Amos is an end time book, prophecy for now, and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. A thanksgiving to God. And proclaim and publish the free offerings. For this is what I would have you do, O you children of Israel, says the eternal God. We need to be very careful when we study our Bibles, not to overanalyze and try to interpolate our thinking into it. Because sometimes we can make something unholy that's unholy, and sometimes we can make things holy that God has not called holy. And sometimes they're holy at one time and not holy at another time. So I, and I realize a lot of times people are trying to be very, very careful but sometimes when you're very careful, you go a bit overboard in trying to force something that simply is not there. And there is nothing in the Bible that says leavening is a bad thing except during days of unleavened bread. If it always represents sin, then we better just start buying or making lots of crackers, I guess, and forget leavening. It just doesn't make any sense at all. If the kingdom of God is going to spread like leavening, that's a good thing. It goes everywhere. So, just a little lesson there in Bible study. I'm glad Gordon pointed that out. I didn't know anyone was bringing that up and trying to force leavening to be bad at all times. But that clearly is not what the Bible says. All right. Let's go to Revelation 2. I started a little series here, I don't know how big it's going to get, uh, about who, what, where, why, where, when, and how of the end-time church, and of course posed the question, uh, what if we're Ephesus? And then we read about Ephesus, and then went on to a book written specifically to Ephesus, and in it, it outlined God's concern for His people. It outlined a need for us to have the right kind of relationship with God. Then He focused on getting our human relationships right. And then an admonition not to have a relationship with Satan. To put on the whole armor of God that He might not deceive us, twist things, uh, lead us down a wrong path, and so on. So... That was the specific letter that Paul wrote to Ephesus. Now let me emphasize again 
that Revelation 2 and 3, the message to the seven churches, may, yes, have been an oath-to-tale thing down through history, but it is very easy to prove that all of chapter 2 and 3 about the churches is written for right now. And I think I pointed that out in Zechariah 3 and 4, because those two end-time prophets that will arise, one of them was given a stone that had the eyes of all seven churches on it in Zechariah 3, and then Zechariah 4, Zerubbabel and Joshua are the olive plants of Revelation 11, and it says that they feed golden oil to all seven of the candlesticks. So for the last two prophets to walk the earth to feed all seven churches, I think it is only logical that all seven would have to be there, would it not? So today, I pose another question. It isn't, what if we are Ephesus? It is, what if we're Smyrna? You can't get away from that question since all seven come at once. Some may think that I was inferring that this group is Ephesus. I don't know that I necessarily believe that or agree with that. I just said, what if? And then we went on to discuss it quite a bit. I think for just briefly here, let's go ahead, since we're going to address the rest of these, and review what he said to Ephesus, because that's the beginning of the message to the seven uh, churches, which are extant in the end time. He addresses the end time here. So he says to the angel of the church of Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 1 of Revelation, write, these things says, he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, in the last verse of chapter 1, it says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. So the one controlling things, then, is Christ, who's been commissioned of his Father, uh, to oversee, to take care of the churches here in the end time specifically. So he is the central figure here. But then his message to the church of Ephesus is, now, I think that it would be difficult and perhaps impossible for us to try to identify where each congregation or church in this splintered time fits in these two chapters, because it only mentions seven churches. And yet we have three or four or five or six or eight hundred different organizations today of the church of God. So, to be safe, I think the only thing we can do is ask the question, what if we're Ephesus, and then what if we're Smyrna, and then what if we're Pergamos, or what if we're a combination of all the above? So all the admonition that is here is something that we need to pay very careful attention to. It has been easy over the decades with the view that these seven churches were just nose to tail through history and that Herbert Armstrong dealt a bit with Sardis and then began Philadelphia and after that came Laodicea 
It's very easy to overlook some of this instruction, thinking that all those people back there in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, and so on, are dead. They're gone. They lived a long time ago. Now, maybe there was a fulfillment through history that had its effect, and maybe there were people there with those characteristics down through history. But what we need to grasp is that everyone that he's talking about here in this end-time synopsis or circumstance is alive, breathing, walking the earth today, right now. He's speaking to all seven churches right now. So that makes it imperative that we consider carefully what Christ himself says to all seven and then apply what might apply to ourselves to what is being said. Now there are people who have tried to identify themselves and say, well, I think we're this one, I think we're that one. And I think that that can be a ditch to fall into. Because if you identify yourself and say, yes, we must be Ephesus, or we must be Smyrna, or we must be Philadelphia, most of them grab that one. I'd say 99% grab that one. And if that's the only one you read, you could be missing some very, very important information that could be pointed at you. And I don't want us to let that happen to us. We need to consider everything that could apply to us. And Christ himself is the one that is giving these messages to the different churches. So to Ephesus, if we be that or in part that, it said, I know your works, your labor, your patience, how you can't bear them which are evil. I suppose evil in the church and perhaps evil in the world around us. And you've tried them which say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And certainly we, among other groups, have examined some who proclaim themselves apostles here in the end and have found out that they are not. So parts of this certainly, I think, apply to what we and others have done very clearly. And have borne, that is, have shouldered or carried the load that has been put upon us. And have patience, and for my name's sake have labored and have not fainted. Now, could you say that this positive instruction applies to a group here or there and them only? I really rather doubt it because there are people in various of the groups that are extant today that have done the things that it's saying right here. If the good applies, we should wear it because it's nice for God to give credit where credit is due. We've had some in our own group here who haven't been patient to wait and see if these things that we've talked about are going to finally and completely come to pass or not. So, even if we were considered by Christ to be Ephesus, there are individuals who didn't live up to the good that's said here. So it doesn't matter, really, does it? You have to take it at face value for what it says Examine yourself carefully and see if the good, he says, is a true application that fits you.
and then if the bad also can apply and fit you. I think it is very important that we grasp that each and every one of these seven messages to the churches start with a partial description of Christ and the things that He is and does, and each of them ends with an encouragement and an admonition to Him that overcomes, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, or something of that nature. So Christ is in charge in each case, and He has something positive and some encouragement and opportunity for everyone. And sandwiched in between may be some good and some bad about individuals and perhaps organizations as well. And some organizations may fit in one of these better than they do the others, but I think that we'll see there's some bleed over in every case. I have been able to find instruction for me in all of these. Uh, and I think that we should be able to do that. I just went through and picked out all the good and said, that must be me. <laughs> Joke, of course. You have to be careful, because there are people that do things like that. You know, if they want to think of themselves as good, they'll just pick out the good and say, that must be me. And then you've got those who are just the other way, and worms is their favorite diet, and uh, everything bad must apply to them, and nothing good could. We have to be balanced in our view of ourselves, so that we're not either all bad or all good, but so that we can honestly recognize and be thankful for the good parts of our character, uh, so that we might be encouraged, and yet at the same time not be blind to problems that need some work. But you find in here that Christ loves everyone here that's mentioned, in spite of even the ill or the bad things that he might say about them. But it's not that they are themselves bad, it's that there's some things that need fixed. And then they can be in the kingdom of God. For my name's sake, you've labored and have not fainted. And I guess those who would still be around to hear these words would have to say, they have labored, they haven't fainted, they haven't given up, they haven't dried up in the sun, but they are still working at it. So there's encouragement there. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. Now, they may be going through and doing a lot of good things, but have lost a certain amount of the zeal, the energy, the strength that it took and takes to truly seek God. It's easy to just sort of lapse back into we do certain things. And that's what it's about. You know, we keep the Sabbath, we keep the feasts, we do this, we do that, we do them out of habit, we do them annually. It's just something we do. But there is a danger in that becoming a form without fire. A habitual way of living that lacks the emotion, the feeling, the zeal for God, the excitement, the desire to see 
your kingdom come, as he tells us to pray. It's easy to lose that focus, to lose that first love, that excitement that we need to have. And that is a danger for anyone in the church, wherever they may be. That it can become old hat, too comfortable, and lose the energy and strength and fire that it needs. You can build a fire, but you, do, you have to keep putting fuel on one to keep it going, don't you? Sometimes you have bellows where you have to blow more air on a fire to keep it going. And so it is with the spiritual fire that burns within us. If it is not fed, kindled, stirred, then it begins to die out. And that's essentially what he's talking about here. Don't let that die out, but keep it renewed, rekindled. Keep putting fuel on that kind of fire. Well, now, the lake of fire is bad. So using that logic that some people were using about leavening being bad, I guess if we use an analogy about fire, it must be bad. No, you can't take that logic there. God says he'll try us in fire to make us what we need to be. In other words, we need to stir the fires of our soul. And if we don't stir those fires, God will stir them in tribulation. So if we don't build a proper fire, He's going to build one under us in order that we might be purified and cleansed and prepared. And apparently, from many, many scriptures, about 90% of the church is going into tribulation. Nine out of ten people in the church of God. Now, why should I, or why should you, think that you are going to be the privileged one that doesn't? Why are any of us any better than the other nine who go in? I really doubt that any of us could claim that we're better Christians than the other 90% of the church. I think a lot of it has to do with how we respond right now and what we do to become what God wants us to be. And also, I know that he is going to call out that 10% particularly to do a work at the end. So it's not just their salvation or because they are a better Christian than the other nine-tenths. It's a job, God has a specific job that he wants done at the end. And he is going to call essentially 10% of what the church was to do it. That also makes it imperative that we begin to understand what the job is that needs done. Because we're not going to be included in that 10% remnant unless we're ready and prepared to do the job once God unveils it and is ready for it to start. I think you have been given that information ahead of time to be a reception committee, to be ones preparing a place for those people to come. That's the job we have beyond personal salvation, overcoming and growing, we have been given an additional responsibility right now. 
And how well we fulfill that might have some bearing on whether or not God lets us be a part of the larger work that is going to come very shortly. So there are certainly some lessons that we need to be thinking about here. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent and do the first works. Or else I will come to you quickly, and I will remove your candlestick out of his place, except you repent. So even though we might be doing good, we might have some good characteristics, whoever we may be, still, if there is a major problem, it could cause our candlestick to be removed. So we need to look at and be very careful that we don't rest on our laurels, That's a very clear message given in Zephaniah 1, in fact, where it says that those who rest on their lees, or it's a a boating term, meaning rest on your oars. Instead of paddling furiously to get where we need to be, people want to just kind of rest on their oars. And they're going to go down with the system, because that's what it's talking about there at the time of the crash of things coming apart here at the end in the world. We need to be very careful not to be resting on our oars when we see these things coming to pass. And we do see them coming to pass now. It's time to scratch gravel or paddle furiously. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The best we've been able to nail down who those people are are some who were compromisers and destroyers of the truth. It's suggested by some commentaries that it may have been the deacon of Acts 6-5, Nicholas. I don't know that that's true, and I don't know that the commentators know that's true. It's just the closest thing they can find that they think might fit. So we don't want to brand anyone in particular with that, but it does seem to be an indication in background study that those who would destroy the truth or compromise with truth And if you've left your first love in zeal, then it would be easy to compromise with it, would it not? He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes, will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So there's the good, there's the bad with Ephesus, and then there's whoever changes what they need to change is going to be in the kingdom of God. So there's encouragement there for them at the end. Then in verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these things, says the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one which was dead and is alive, Christ who was sacrificed and resurrected. That's meant to get our attention, is it not? This is he who died but lives. These are his words. To somebody... Here in the end. You, me, applies to somebody who's living and breathing right now. I know your works and tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. So there is a class of people here at the end who are going to have trials, troubles, and tribulation... And he says, I am aware of what you have had to go through. 
Now, any one of us could look at that and say, well, that could apply to me. Is this me? I've had some trials, troubles, and tribulations, haven't I? In poverty. So it must be a, a bunch of people, individuals, or a group, or groups, who also are not well healed financially, might have to struggle to make ends meet. And it's some of those whom he addresses in Haggai and says, you have pockets with holes. And money should not be the big deal anymore. Yes, we have to eat, we have to pay the bills, so we have to work. But that should not be the emphasis because now as we look at things, even the rich people are losing their money, aren't they? There are huge mansions now that are up for sale because people have lost their savings in the stock market and other investments they put them in. So he's saying, that's not the riches you need to be seeking. Of course, Christ taught that when he was here, didn't he? Seek ye not treasures on earth. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. And lay up treasures in heaven. So it's the spiritual works that have always been the most important, but it's being emphasized greatly here. That all of this is going away that is around us. And we see jobs going away. We see people's houses going away. So this is becoming more and more in focus, isn't it? You can see it now happening. If we'd have talked about this five, six, eight, ten years ago, it would have all been, how is this going to come about? Now we see it actually happening before our very eyes. So it should make it alive and real to us. We may have trouble making ends meet financially, but if we're rich spiritually, that's what really counts. That's what's important. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. On a physical level in our nation, I know that there are physical Edomites who are in control of the money, who are now in control of the politics, and who are going to oversee the destruction of Jacob, because that was prophesied all the way back in Genesis 49. So when you read the Internet articles about these Zionist Jews, that's who it's talking about. And the Internet articles are essentially correct about that. They may not all of them have them correctly identified as Edomites or Khazars, but some of them even have that right, because they refer to the Khazars and the conversion of people who were not Jews, we call it the 13th tribe, who were actually Edomites and say they are Jews that are not. So our politics and our money circles are full of those who say they are Jews but are not. And the church also has those who say they are true believers of God, true spiritual Jews, and are not. And some of those became apostles who were not truly apostles and led them into a false Judaism, Protestantism. The Messianics fit in that category as well. So they can say they're physical Jews, they can say they're spiritual Jews. And in either case, there are many who do not live up to the claim. 
This is mentioned again when it gets to Philadelphia as well. Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. So there is a, a certain amount or a group of people who are going to do quite a bit of suffering. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. There are people sitting in congregations of God around the world today, different organizations, many of whom are going to wind up in prison. Those people sitting in those chairs in services this day. If we can make this as real and to the front of our minds as possible. It could mean that some of you sitting in these chairs right here in this room, including me, though I'm not sitting, could be in jail before this is over. Some they will put into prison. That you may be tried. So it will be a test. Sitting in prison is not much fun. Remember Joseph, one of our fathers that we're to look to, sat in jail for many years. And he had to be tried before he could be used of God to help save Israel as they went into Egypt. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't look forward to jail. But on the other hand, if it tries us spiritually and we come out having passed, then that was a good thing. Think it not strange, the fiery trials that come upon you. But just be aware that some will go to prison. And if it happens to be you or me, we need to understand that we were warned ahead of time and that we have a job to do there, and that is to remain faithful and true to God and not give up or give in to some of the things that happen in prison. That you may be tried and you shall have tribulation ten days. Now, some have referred to that as being a time during the Middle Ages, and perhaps there was that application. But always bear in mind that these seven messages were written to the seven churches that were before Joshua and Zerubbabel in Zechariah 3 and 4, and that it is very much entwined with the rest of the book of Revelation for the end times. So it's not something that's already done and gone. Be faithful unto death. Some who go to prison will be in prison and perhaps be released. Others will die there. So be faithful even to death. If they try to get you to renounce God and Christ and His church and the beliefs that you have, they may very well threaten to kill you and they may indeed kill you. They have killed a lot of people in the past who were true servants of God, including Isaiah, including many of the apostles, people who were very, very much spiritually strong. But they had to, in part, die because they had a huge job to do in the future, like being head over a tribe of Israel in the kingdom of God. And God needed them tested carefully. And they may have been gone through that partly as an example to us. 
Because in the chapter on faith in Hebrews 11, it says that these went through those things for our sakes. So be thankful to Isaiah and Paul and Stephen and many others who were faithful to death. Now, if you're in prison and they say, well, we've got a chain gang. We work seven days a week here. There would be those who would go along with the Nicolaitan teaching, and that is that uh, maybe you better compromise in order to live and go ahead and work on the Sabbath so they don't kill you. Then get before the judgment seat and say, well, they were going to kill me if I didn't work on Sabbath. And Christ says, didn't I tell you not to fear those who can kill the body, but he who can kill body and soul? Oops. Forgot that one. I hear that reasoning here and there in the church of God today. Well, what if I die? Well, what if you die? Is that really that big a deal? Well, it is to me, <laughs> you know. We're all scheduled to die at least once. Hopefully not twice. And we're to fear God and obey Him and serve Him. And if that leads to our physical death as we're being tried with some great and fiery personal physical trial, then so what? Think about it. What of any of God's instructions that He gives through the entire Bible is something that you should disallow in order to save your physical life. But people will use that reasoning. <coughs> but He tells us here that some of the end-time church will indeed go there. It could be you and me. Very easily. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. So see, they can't kill you after all. They might just put your physical body to rest. Now that's a, that's a scary thing, I know, and I don't mean to minimize it in a wrong way. None of us really, for the most part, wants to die. And yet, on the other hand, somebody that does die, to them, they don't know they're dead. And it's only a split second from the time their consciousness left them until they're in the resurrection and they're alive again. Meantime, they rest a moldering in the grave, and time goes by without their knowledge. Their trials, their troubles, their tribulations are over. Now, I don't think we shall drink Kool-Aid and die. That isn't the point. But the point is, we do need to value eternal life far above physical life. And whatever God tells us to physically do on this earth, we need to do and not take, perhaps, at times, other solutions thinking that, well, I might die. If you do, your salvation is probably guaranteed. And if you do, we will put you in a hole and cover you up so you don't stink the joint up. 
And I hope you'll have the same kindness to me. But put the spiritual and the eternal ahead of the physical always. That's what he's saying here. Jail, death, doesn't matter. Be faithful to God. Keep his Sabbath. Keep his holy days. If they threaten to kill you for not keeping the Sabbath, fire away. I will keep God's Sabbath regardless. Is what you can tell them. I've heard Protestant preachers say, well, I know the Sabbath is the correct day, but people won't come to my services if I meet on Saturday. So the Lord just has to forgive them, I guess. No, He doesn't work that way. We have to teach and do the truth. The best we understand it. And seek better understanding. And then do it. And he will give us a crown of life. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. So I, I think he put that admonition at the end of this one for the express reason that he's saying that there will be some in this category who will have to physically die, but they won't have to suffer the second death because they were faithful to the end. That's a pretty nice guarantee at the end of that. You might have to go through it, but you will be saved. That's all that really counts, isn't it? It's just the comparison I'm talking about here. The comparison of this physical life and what's in it compared to the spiritual life and what's in it. Because we sometimes have to forgo things in this physical life, even this physical life, in order to obey God. And in that case, we'll be able to escape the second death. All right, let's go on down to Pergamos, verse 12. What if we're Pergamos then? What if we'd been Smyrna? I don't know whether we're Smyrna or not, but we might have some elements of it, and we'd better heed that admonition and be sure that no matter what we go through, we're ready to be faithful to the death. Because it might apply to some of us. So to Pergamos, these things says he which has the sharp sword with two edges. The sharp sword with two edges is referred to elsewhere as cutting both ways. You do not want to get in a sword fight with Christ. He wields the Word of God expertly. He is the Word of God. Now, Satan got in a sword fight, a fight of spiritual words with him, at the time of the temptation after Christ had fasted 40 days. That was a sword fight. A fight of the words of God. And who came off the loser on that one? Satan, with all his power, all his understanding, and all his knowledge of Scripture, which is far more complete than yours and mine. He knows all the Scriptures. He has a better memory than any of us. I'm sure he has the Bible entirely memorized. 
Satan the devil. But he also has the capacity to twist every word that's in there. But he also is very subtle and he only twists it sometimes a little bit so that it can appear very genuine and yet it's not right. But Christ is the one who wields the two-edged sword and he can cut bone and tissue and joints very easily with it. And he only had to give one little answer at each thing that Satan posed to him to defeat him entirely. Because he had the straight truth, not that which was twisted just a little bit. And Satan used subtlety with him because he knew Christ knew the Bible. He was trying to convince him of something and he was trying to use Christ's greed and selfishness. The problem is he miscalculated and Christ didn't have greed and selfishness. But Satan was judging Christ by himself. And it didn't work. We need to be careful not to judge others by ourselves. Because sometimes we make them as bad as we are and it might not be so. So here's what he who has the sharp two-edged sword has to say to Pergamos. I know your works and where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is. Now, is that a specific location? Some have felt that that was Rome, Italy. Some might think it's New York, New York. Some might think it's a little village that either doesn't exist or almost doesn't exist in Asia Minor and Turkey. I don't know, perhaps... That rather than trying to narrow that down because the end-time church is scattered all over the world. And I think that in a larger sense, Satan's seat is this planet. It's God's footstool, but it's Satan's seat, and he dwells here on this earth. He goes back and forth to God's throne in heaven to accuse you and me, but this is where he dwells. So I think in an end-time broader understanding, we have to realize that the, sat the seat of Satan's dwelling is this earth. And he has deceived the whole earth. So his influence goes everywhere, doesn't it, that mankind is. There is no place on this earth that you can go to escape Satan. This is where he dwells. This is in that sense, the city, well, it doesn't even say a city here, does it? It just says, I know where Satan's seat is. And perhaps that gives us room for a bit of a broader application of that. I've been in some pretty wild places on this earth, and I've seen Satan's influence everywhere I've gone. It's, it's everywhere. You can't get away from it. So if we're on this earth, we're living where Satan's seat is. And you hold fast my name and have not denied my faith. So wherever we are on earth, if we're a Christian and we're in Pergamos, this attitude, and I think that these churches in that sense are attitudes of the people, and therefore any one of us could be a cross-section of all seven. We might have characteristics out of any of these. 
That's why we need to understand the who, what, where, when, and how. We need to grasp and listen to everything that is said to all seven because they could apply to us. But there are, is a group of people on this earth who have not denied his name or held fast his name and not denied the, his faith. Even in those days when Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You can be faithful, you can be true, you can be patient, but you could still have some problems, couldn't you? Because you hold there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Now, much of the sin of Balaam had to do with money and wanting to use money to further his purposes. So when you go back and read about Balaam, that is certainly a factor. And when you look at this earth today, money is the key thing, isn't it? Wealth and materiality is the focus of this entire world. So if money's your God, you could be in trouble. If material things are your God, you could be in trouble. So Balaam taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. Now that's a, a category of sin. It is not necessarily wrong to eat meat offered to idols. Ooh, did I teach that? No, I'm just quoting Paul. I remember Paul told some of them, it doesn't matter if the meat's been offered to an idol. Uh, what can the idol do to the meat? It's still just meat. It doesn't affect it. And yet there's a category of sin that is likened to meat offered to idols. Let's understand the difference between going to the temple of Diana and actually purchasing a piece of meat that they had offered that morning to the goddess Diana and sitting down over here, maybe having it cooked for you or taking it home and cooking you, cooking it and eating it. And it's been offered to Diana, actually to Satan, ultimately. That meat had been offered to Satan and you ate it. Now, wouldn't that be a sin? Now, in the view of some people back in the early New Testament church, they took it that far. And Paul had to explain that didn't change the meat at all. Did it make it into pig or lobster? Did it defile it because somebody had incanted some, some words over it and said, blessed be this meat to Diana? Didn't change the meat, did it? Still beef, if it was clean meat or sheep, whatever it was. And Paul would eat it. So now, is this a contradiction in Scripture? No, I think you have to have an understanding of what Christ is driving at when he says this. Now, what would be... All right, let's, let's put it this way. Scripture itself says in the writings of Paul, and it was accepted as Scripture, okay, that it is okay to sit down and eat meat that has been offered to Diana or 
Beelzebub or whoever, whatever God they want to pick up, they all represent Satan anyway. So Paul has said you can eat meat that has been blessed by Satan. It's okay. Or even by a Jewish rabbi, same deal. No difference. They are of their father, the devil. I bet we never considered that. This is kosher. It's been blessed by the rabbi. So it's okay. Now, if the rabbi blessed it, the rabbi worships the devil. And he has blessed it to the devil. And we've all eaten kosher meat, haven't we? We haven't gone over there and eaten any meat that was offered to Diana. But we could. And it wouldn't hurt us any more than the meat offered before the rabbi. Unless you had a conscience problem with it. I dare say there are those of us here who, if they were not educated on this, would have no problem sitting down in a Jewish restaurant and eating something that the rabbi had blessed. But if they took us to the temple of Diana or some other pagan god in Greece, let's say, and the Orthodox priest had dedicated it to a Zeus, we'd have a problem with that. But really, there is no difference. And that is what the Word of God says. Does it not? I could go back there. You've all read it. Paul said it won't hurt you. Go ahead and eat it. Unless you have a weak brother around that it might affect his attitude. In that case, you didn't do it. So he made that very clear in that scripture. So what we're reading here then cannot contradict what Paul said. It has to fit in with it and make sense perhaps on a different level. Let's think of it in that sense. Now, a stumbling block before Israel in the light of Balaam having to do with eating things sacrificed to idols. Now, we already know, if we've studied Balaam, that he had a money problem and wanted money and was a very greedy man, and he was willing to go to any length spiritually for money. Now, what is one of the greatest idols of today? To put this in a modern context, money. That is an idol. If it's used in any way to help remove us from God. Materiality can very easily become a God. A job can become God. Because people will say, well, I have to work on Saturday or I won't have a job and it's hard to find jobs today. So I have to work on Saturday. Then you're eating meat sacrificed to idols, to the idol of materiality, to the idol of this is more important than God's Sabbath. If the God of Balaam, the God of money, becomes so important to us that we will fornicate with the world or eat unto idols of the world, then we are breaking this. Now, when we started this, I doubt if any of you or very few of you had considered it from that standpoint. 
And you had probably read over this maybe how many times in your life and thought, well, I don't eat anything offered to idols and I don't commit fornication. This can't be applying to me. Well, it might be a whole lot more so than we have realized. If we bow down to the God of money, then that is an idol that separates us from God. And it's fornicating with this world, going along to get along, doing the things of the world. You see, fornication and adultery can be both a physical act between two human or more human beings, or it can be a spiritual thing where we're out cavorting with the world and consorting with it because Israel committed spiritual adultery by putting the world and its money and its things ahead of God. So he's really giving you two examples here that cover a much broader area, and that is anything in this world that separates you from God is doing what Christ is saying here, causing spiritual fornication and imbibing of the ways of Satan. That's the kind of meat offered to idols and fornication that is meant here. It cannot be speaking of just physical meat because Paul made it very clear that physical meat offered to Diana didn't mean a thing. But spiritual fornication or meat offered to Satan or deeds offered before Satan instead of doing what God says then are in the same category we're talking about spiritually here. And I dare say, there is not one living, breathing human being in the church of God today who has not done exactly what Christ is talking about. I've done it. You've done it. We've all imbibed of things in this world that pulled us away from God. Then this becomes real. When we say who, what, where, when, and how, then suddenly it becomes me and thee, and this is how we did it. So have you also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. If indeed the Nicolaitans had to do with compromising, that is something that he truly, truly hates. We cannot compromise any of the words of God or let any of them fall to the ground, as Jeremiah says. And he makes it very clear when we get to the story to the Laodiceans that lukewarmness, which is what constitutes compromise, really, is something that he cannot abide and will scatter and destroy for. We have to very, very carefully consider the words of God and not destroy the truth by compromising it with things that we want of the world. Now, that is something that is very, very easy for us to do. Didn't think you were a Nicolaitan, did you? But you have been. Probably still are to one degree or another. Because there are times we all compromise with something we know is right, and yet in thought or in deed, 
we will compromise God's Word. So we can't label. Let's say, we'll say, let's say we started analyzing the church, and we got a, name, a list of all the names of the organizations and groups, big and small, of the church. And we started going down through there and trying to decide which one's Pergamos, which one's Smyrna, which one's this, and those people must be Nicolaitans. If you don't understand what he's trying to get across here, you could make some grievous errors. And you could label somebody else that because of kind of the way they approach things. And you might miss some of it that applied to yourself. It would be easy to do. Because I haven't read anything in here about Pergamos that I haven't made a mistake on and done the wrong way. I don't think you can either. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who will compromise with the Word of God, he's the one that has the sharp sword with two edges. And you can make all the excuses you want to make about why you imbibed this world and thought its thoughts and did some of the things it does, and it'll cut right through your arguments so fast. Does this begin to put in perspective a little bit some of the things that we have focused on in the last years about trying to get away from a lot of the things of this world? And I won't go through the list. You've heard it too many times and it nauseates you sometimes to hear me go back through some of the things that are still dear to you. But you know what they are. Think about it in these terms. Repent or I'll be on you like ugly on an ape. Quickly. And I'll fight against him with the sword of my mouth. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knowing knows save he that receives it. That'd be quite a ceremony, wouldn't it? If you're in among the 144,000 and he had 144,000 white stones and your name, your new name, was engraved on one of those and then your name isn't what it used to be, it's this new name and nobody can see it but you. Now there may be an introduction ceremony when everybody's new names are brought out because I don't think we'll go through Eternity with that little white stone hiding it here and cupping it against our chest so nobody can know what our new name is. Now, if you become a part of the kingdom of God, I don't think that name is going to be anything to be ashamed of. Now, if, that, if your new name is something to be ashamed of, you're not going to be there anyway. You'll be in the lake of fire. So it won't matter. You won't need a new name. You can just go with the old one. My old name would fit pretty well in the lake of fire. I need a new one. I desire a new one. And if I'll overcome and not do the things that this world does and think the way it thinks, then I'll be given a new name. So will you.
Sorry, verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things, says the Son of God, who has his eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Now think about meeting someone who is to judge you, and his eyes shining like fire. Now, when we talk to people, it's good that they look us in the eye when you talk, because the eyes are the mirror of the soul. And sometimes people like to wear sunglasses when they talk to you. Uh, I always hate to talk to somebody that has sunglasses on. It's, it's, it's hard to see their expressions and to, if you will, read their mind because so much expression is in the eyes and it hides it. And people do that on purpose. Now, there are people with eye problems that need dark glasses, I guess, to protect their eyes because they have a problem. And sometimes out in the bright sunlight, you want to do it anyway if your eyes are normal. But I sometimes wear these uh, transition lenses that get dark. And most generally, when I talk to somebody, I take them off because they darken my eyes a little bit. Maybe I should just get some really, really dark ones so people couldn't read me as well. Uh, but no. When judgment comes, we're going to have to look Christ right in the eye. You're going to be ready for that? His eyes shine like the sun. The feet are like fine brass. They shine too. So here's the guy that can pierce the soul. He has eyes brighter than anyone here, and he can look right through you. He can read your thoughts. Now, we try to read each other's thoughts, don't we? And we have more or less success and probably more failure at that than we do success. But he doesn't have a problem that way. I know your works, this is Thyatira, and love and service and faith and patience. Those are some of the fruit of the Spirit. These are, this is talking to God's people. Your patience and your works, and the last to be more than the first. You've done more and more and more as time has gone on. That's the way it ought to be. We started out at a certain level of service to others, and that should increase as we go through life, so that our service is more widespread and affects more and helps more people. So he's complimenting people in this category with that. Then he says, notwithstanding, he says, that's all good, and, and we do see fruit of the Spirit here in these people. Again, these people are living, walking, and breathing right now, today, that he's writing this to. This is an end-time book to the end-time church of people who exist in the days of Joshua and Zerubbabel, the two witnesses, at the end. And those two men are alive and breathing today. They are somewhere on this earth. They have not, so far as I know, begun the active work of Zechariah 3 and 4 in a way that is visible to the world. But I'm sure they're working somewhere and may or may not even know who they are. Now, we have a lot who have proclaimed that they are. And I am sure in most cases... That is not the case. That's not something that humble men would brag about. 
It's something that would be revealed by God when God is ready to do so for his purposes. But the point I'm trying to make is those men are alive somewhere in the church today. They will not be novices because that's one of the qualifications. God is not going to call some guy off the street and make them his witnesses. When he talks about, you are my witnesses in Isaiah 42 and 3 and through that section, (coughs) he's talking about veteran members of the church, a lot of them. And then two who will be selected for a specific job as witnesses. But all of us who are a part of the end-time remnant who are doing the work of God are going to be the end-time witnesses. Two will bear the preaching responsibility to the world. But we will all be witnesses to the world. We need to recognize that and live that way. Anyway, these people had a lot of the fruit of God's Spirit. But they also have a problem. They have a few things, several problems against you. Because you suffered that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. uses the exact same phrase here with Thyatira that he did with Pergamos. And yet, even if Thyatira were in the Middle Ages, They were not teaching then in a classic fashion that you should eat things sacrificed to idols, I doubt. So this must have a spiritual meaning apart from that original Old Testament Israel thing of eating physical animals sacrificed to idols. Or in Paul's day, the same thing, where he said it was okay for church members to eat physical meat offered to idols. This has to be a spiritual connotation to end-time people because we've shown that it is written to end-time people, and yet I do not believe, it would be certainly an aberration if it were to be the case, I truly doubt that there is any group in the church today, anywhere, who would teach you to eat meat sacrificed to idols per se. In most of the areas where the church is, it simply doesn't happen anyway, does it? Do we have temples to Zeus and Diana here in the United States? Well, there probably is one somewhere these days. But not in the churches. And I doubt there's a minister anywhere that's going around saying, let's go down to the temple of Zeus and and have ourselves a steak. It just isn't a common part of our society, is what I'm trying to say. So this has to be something that's fairly common in the end-time church for him to bring it up twice to two different groups. So if it isn't the one, and it is a huge problem, apparently... Doesn't he list it here as something that could cost you your eternal life? And that at least two churches in the end time, two groups or categories of people, maybe I should say, because there are many, many hundreds of churches, and they all have to fit in these seven descriptions somewhere. 
So this is a major problem in the churches today, whatever it's talking about. So he talks here to them about the fruit of his Spirit, and they're teaching the teachings of Jezebel. Now, there's not a minister in the church today who teaches we ought to follow Jezebel. I truly doubt it. Anybody know one? I don't. She died a long time ago. Dogs ate her. Why would we go back there? And yet this is an end time thing, so he must obviously be talking about somebody other than that Jezebel, but maybe some of the things that were a problem with Jezebel that are still a problem today. That would make sense. Which calls herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants, in time children of God, to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. I doubt if there are any ministers in the church today who would teach that fornication is okay. Do you know of any? Why are you here? Why aren't you there? I'm being sarcastic. I doubt if there are any that do. Now you'll find some Protestants here and there or some evangelists or evangelical movement or whatever that teach that fornication is all right, I guess, but... That's not normally a religious thing, is it? And yet he's talking about the end-time church and people who are teaching fornication in the form that Jezebel did. Must be a spiritual fornication. Must be idols that we look to in this world that would separate us from God, that actually have to do with the great false god, Satan. So it doesn't matter which one it is. It can be Jewish rabbis, it can be Methodist preachers, it can be Catholic priests, it can be evangelicals, it can be anybody. Because none of them worship the true God. That was a big pill for a lot of us to swallow years ago, wasn't it? How could all these churches be worshiping the devil? And yet Christ made it very clear that those seemingly righteous Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes were worshiping their father, the devil. His father you are to whom you obey. So if we obey the dictates of Satan the devil and his society which he has planned and put before us, then we are offering meat offered to idols, and committing spiritual fornication. That's what this society is. Can we grasp and understand that? Satan deceives the whole world, and the whole world's culture teaches us to worship Satan in a very open or a very subtle way, depending on the circumstance. Satan has something for everybody. He has very subtle things that appear as angels of righteousness. But it's hard to determine whether they're bad or good. Some things that are just plain, outright, openly, obviously sinful. Now I think you and I often can see the things that are outright, obviously sinful. 
group sex with drunks and crack cocaine, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, addicts, would be clearly a sin, wouldn't it? We could see that. That's a part of the world really in good. But it's some of those things that are, what would you say, kind of almost on the fence? But Satan takes something and makes it appear almost okay. And you have to really think about it to realize that that's a part of this world that could lead you astray and cost you the kingdom of God. Now that's why Paul told Ephesus, you take on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the sword of salvation and be aware of the wiles of Satan the devil. So he can't, he can't confuse or deceive us with some of those more obvious things very easily. But take something like music. It could be really, really bad and obviously so. But it's some of that which sounds pretty good, but is there a twist there that leads your emotions, your body, your feelings in a way that's not good? And it could be very subtle. It could appear to be a pretty good song. But maybe you need to think about that song and the beat and everything that goes with it and say, wait a minute now, is that truly godly? Would God approve of that? Would God say, I think that's a song you really ought to listen to. That's the kind of music you should hear. Or would it be, hmm, I don't know. That's the stuff that's really scary because it might not be off much, just a little bit. It's like food. They can package it and make it where it really looks good and it's full of chemicals and junk. So it might look pretty good, but what's the effect on your body? It's those subtle things that we have problems with. Jezebel was sometimes pretty subtle, and Satan is very subtle. And he's the one Jezebel worshipped. She's the one the Jewish rabbis worship, and they don't even know it. They think they're following Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and God the Father. And yet their doctrines are doctrines of demons. So they appear almost righteous. So much so, brethren, that many, many people in the church of God look to the Messianic Jews for truth and guidance in Christianity today. A lot of people have attached themselves to the Messianic movement or to the, even the traditional Orthodox movement of the Jews. And they respect the Jews highly. And they look to them for many of their answers. And yet Christ called them every ugly name you could think of. Snakes, whited sepulchers, full of rotten men's bones inside. How do you get worse than that? <coughs> Where's the worst place somebody could put you? How about in a tomb that just had somebody put in there nice and fresh a month ago? be a pretty grisly place to be. And that's what Christ likened the righteousness of the Orthodox Jews of his day to. But I don't think they've gotten any better. 
So we need to be very, very careful. I gave her space to repent of her fornication. So there's time here for us to quit fornicating with the lover that is this world. And she repented not. Some will just go on with the things of this world and not change it. Behold, I will cast her into a bed and then they commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. This is serious business right here. We already know that about 90% of the church is going into the great tribulation. So this verse is not talking about a small group of people or one of the churches somewhere. This is talking about people in all the churches. Because 90% of us going into tribulation is a pretty good high percentage of those who will not repent of their fornication and sacrifice to idols. This great whore of a nation we live in. And God calls Israel the great whore in Ezekiel 16 and Revelation 17 and 18. If we consort with the culture of America, we are consorting with the great whore. Could it be put any plainer than that? Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her plagues or her sins and her plagues. And he's talking to all of his people right here when he's discussing Thyatira. So this isn't some ancient woman. This is the Jezebel that lives today. More specifically, the great whore of Revelation. And it's speaking of America and Britain primarily. So, this nation is going into great tribulation. And 90% of the church is going into great tribulation. So, this must be a sin, then, that is major in the church at the end time. And affects almost the whole church. 90% of it. May affect the whole church. And only the ones that repent of their connection with this culture and society around us. You know, we've been brainwashed, brethren. We have been brainwashed so bad to think that this is a Christian nation, home of the brave, godly people. This nation has gone into such depths and degradation and worships Jezebel of old in every facet of life. We have to come out of it or we're going to suffer with it. It's just that clear. I will kill her children with death. That's pretty final. 
until and all the churches shall know. All the churches have to exist now in order to see what happens to those who are thinking in these terms that he describes as Thyatira. It's going to be obvious to everyone. Now, if this were just nose to tail down through the ages and Thyatira died out 1,500 years ago, not all the church would see what happens to them. But this is a modern-day prophecy about the modern day, and all the other churches are there to see what happens to them. All the churches shall know that I am He which searches the reins and hearts, and I will give you unto every one of you according to your works. And 90% of those works are going to put people into the Great Tribulation. Better forewarned. It's a little scary, isn't it? But better scared and forewarned with an opportunity to change it than to go into it. I don't want anyone here to go into that tribulation. I don't want to go in it. And he's telling us what we need to do in order to prevent that, to ensure, because he's trying your heart and mine. Now, we're not out physically eating meat offered to idols in that classic sense. We're not out physically committing fornication. So it must be something spiritual. Fornicating with Satan's world. Consorting with it. Mixing with it. But until you, I say... And to the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan. Now that draws it down, doesn't it? Some will not have known the depths of Satan. They will not have been pulled down by this society around them. Because this society is the depths of Satan. And if you follow the ways of this society today you're going to wind up addicted to some really bad stuff without going into all of it. And it will draw you away from God and into the tribulation. They've not known the depths of Satan as they speak. I will put upon you none other burden. It's burden enough to live in and be influenced by this world around us. And to have to repent of that and have a pure, clean heart before God without Him putting any more burden on. It's not easy to separate yourself from this world and all those things that glitter and shine and seem fun that are in it. Not easy at all. But that which you have already, hold fast till I come. Hang on to the truth that we have learned. And don't let yourself be pulled into the things that Satan has out there in this world that will either clearly or subtly lead you away from God. (coughs) And he that overcomes, boy, here's some relief suddenly. He that overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him will I give power over the nations. 
to rule with him with a rod of iron in the world tomorrow. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I have received of my Father. If we resist this world, then the time will come that all the evils in this world we will be a part of shattering with a rod of iron. There's so many things that you and I have sat around and talked about that are bad in this world. And how it just makes us sick and we wish it could be changed. <coughs> God says if we overcome the influences of it and are faithful to the end, <coughs> we'll be a part of having the opportunity to shatter all these things that are evil and some of them that are enticing. That's the bad part of it is is that Satan can make evil very enticing and sound like fun, and some sin, frankly, is quite fun. Sin can be an emotional high, it can be exciting, it can be titillating, be interesting. Physically, to a human being and their emotions, sin can be a lot of fun. And Satan knows it. And he puts it before us. Doesn't the Bible talk about the temporary pleasures of sin? Yeah. Sin can be pleasurable. Why do you think so many people sin? Because it's fun. They like it. They enjoy it. That's why we sin. I'm not into sin that hurts, are you? I mean, not that hurts immediately. <laughs> now you can say, well, that's a sin, but I think I'll do it anyway. Oh, lose a finger. Now that's not fun sin. You take a certain substance, maybe, and it completely blows your mind immediately, and you're pretty much a vegetable from then on. That wasn't a very fun kind of sin, and not too many people get involved in it. At least not after they see other people dying. Then they kind of back off and say, let's find a different kind of fun. No. Sin can be fun. can be exciting. And Satan knows how to use our emotions to cause us to do things that are contrary to God and that will cost us eternal life. We just don't need to go there. Well, I think we'll stop there. It's almost 2 o'clock. We got down to the end of chapter 2 and beginning of 3. But it does close on a very positive note. It will stand against the things of this world that Satan would tempt us to do. Be faithful and true to God. Then he'll give us opportunity to help change the whole world. And that's an exciting prospect. You know, there's some things that are done out here in this world that I wouldn't have any desire to do whatsoever. The other things that have been concocted <coughs> that could appeal to me or appeal to you. And you know, those are the things that I'd really like to help get rid of. Because, you know, if you're not tempted on something, it's no big deal to you. Right? But if you are tempted, that creates a problem. 
So it's the things that are a problem to us that we really would most like see disappear. And there are things in this world that are a problem to each and every one of us because we're not perfect yet. But he does say if we'll overcome, he'll give us power over the nations. Boy, that's the big thing that people lust for today. That's what the people in the New World Order, who are going to usher in Satan's New World, want. They want that kind of power to control everything. But they don't have the character of God, and they won't obey God. And a lot of them outrightly worship Satan the devil and say so, willing to admit it. God is only going to give that kind of power forever to you and me if we overcome. And we can have what the rulers of this world today want. Why do you think they're going to hate us so bad? They're going to see that God is offering us what they wanted. Boy, are they going to be mad. But here it is. God will give us that power. And we can make changes for the good, not for the evil. I look forward to that day.